Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest, John Tony, JT. He is the global CISO of the Labora Group of Companies. JT, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to meet you, Ted. Yeah, yeah, this is, we're going to have some fun. So I want to jump right into a part of your background that I think is, uh, is really interesting to me personally, but I think a lot of our audience will, will dig it too because of the lessons we might be able to pull out of this. So you are former Secret Service. I was. I was a special agent with the U.S. Secret Service. That's so rad. So first of all, thank you for your service. What an amazing profession and, and calling. And uh, talk about putting yourself on the line there. So I think what I'd like to explore on this. I'm sure there's plenty you cannot talk about, so I won't ask you to uh, <laughs> to get into those details. But when we think about what it takes to be responsible for protecting the head of state of the United States, what can we learn from that? What can we extract from the principles of being in the Secret Service to cybersecurity? How can we build better, more secure systems based on some of the things you've learned in the Secret Service? For me, the methodology actually transferred really well, and it guides me every single day in what I do. So when you become a Secret Service agent, in all the training we go through and the Secret Service you know, basic training, you learn that you know, the president is here, the protectee is here, and the post standards go here to protect this. And the magnetometers are a certain location, certain hallways are locked off, the perimeters are set up a certain way. So I think about that in IT security terms, and I just replace the president with the crown jewels data. And then I build um, my infrastructure, my architecture in almost the exact same way. So you know, there's a threat intel piece. Well, we had intelligence groups scouting for what was coming in. We had post standards locking places off. Those are, those are firewalls or you know, IAM rules. And so all those components, a good security plan, whether it's physical security or cybersecurity, share the same values and share the same plan. And someday I hope to write it out into, I'm thinking about making a little cartoon about it that I can share. But of course, I'll have to run that by the Secret Service to make sure they allow me to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating hearing you describe it in those ways. Uh, I talk about almost identical principle in whether giving talks or I write about it in my book a lot, this idea of how like a castle and how you protect a monarch, which is pretty much very similar to how you protect a president. That's the same as how you build secure systems. You have to have, like you were talking about defense in depth, and you have to have all kinds of systems in place to reduce the likelihood of a breach and then reduce the impact in the event that a breach happens. 
So when you think about how we apply those ideas now to security, is there any, uh, to cybersecurity, is there, are there things that jump out to you where like, well, here's something that's really different or is the parallel, are the parallels just so strong that they're almost the same thing? The parallels are very strong in the secret service in that, in that world. It was a decision of when to move and when not to move, right? When you stand, you stand your ground and you hold tight and you're going to stay here and let the, the effects play out around you. And, but when you have to move, you have to move really, really fast. And that is, has been my challenge in the private sector since I left the government is coaching teams that when it's time to move, we have to move fast. We can't, you know, this can't take a long time. And having those you know, incident response plans in place and having everybody coached and having it rehearsed. Because whether you're dealing with something exploding or a cyber incident under extreme stress, you're only going to make one, maybe two good decisions. That's what, you know, your, your brain can't calculate everything. So having as much pre-planned and, you know, everybody talks about playbooks, but it's absolutely true, whether you're in the secret service or you're in information security, you can only make a few quality decisions in that short time. So that's an interesting aspect to the idea of incident response, the quality of decision-making. I think maybe people who haven't developed an incident response plan, they probably think about it in terms of more like, what are the steps? What should we do? How should we prioritize those steps? And certainly that's part of decision-making, but what you're talking about is the human factor. How do people actually think? How do we process in a crisis? So is part of what you're suggesting that as we develop incident response plans, we need to sort of emulate some of that stress scenario so that the decision is kind of pre-made for us? Is that what we're doing? I agree. Stress inoculation, as we called it, is really important, even in, in incident response and knowing communication channels. So when I was with the government, we all spoke the same language. We had the same acronyms. When I went to, I worked for a very large company in the Midwest during an incident response issue, I was talking with a team in Central Europe and the team were hardworking, very earnest, very caring people. But it turns out that the things I were saying, and I thought were basic IR concepts, that team had no experience in IR and didn't understand what I was saying. So they would nod and agree and, and I assumed they understood me and they didn't understand. So I realized it was on me that I wasn't communicating my intentions and instructions clearly and they didn't you know they didn't want to come across as knowledgeable or didn't want to upset me or whatever the reason were was they they couldn't comprehend what i was getting so as much as having things pre-planned having a same language so i'm talking not talking about english versus polish or romanian or what have you i'm talking about having the same bed of concepts across the team so when you say we're going to remediate this box or we're going to do this. We're going to get this offline. Everybody understands what you're actually talking about. Sure. Yeah, it's fascinating. The idea how jargon can be really isolating, right? Uh, not everyone knows the same jargon. And sometimes we don't even realize we're using jargon. You know, we're just so used to working in corporate America, working the government or whatever. So how do you overcome that? Spending time with teams. You know, I, I've been on teams where there's an artificial construct where they put you in a you know, group and try to get everybody working together. There's no real replacement for time and distance. For, for me, you know, you learn how people move, you understand them. It's harder today with this remote workforce, but just time working together and listening and understanding the words that my team say, the phrasing they use, 
so I can respond correctly to what they intend, not necessarily what I hear. And just time together is the most valuable thing in responding to an instance and having that familiarity and having that trust. I like that. Now, I'm certain you cannot disclose any details about the incident that you're referring to, but maybe you can help us extract some lessons learned from that process. So to what extent you can, what happened? I mean, obviously don't tell any details, but generally speaking, what was the source of a failure and what did we learn from that process that others listening to this can say, all right, well, I'm going to now approach my situation a little differently based on what JT went through. An employee looking at something he shouldn't have been looking at and it infected the computer system and affected another system and snowballed from there. And it was a, a real issue because, you know, the, the malware had been invited into the network and now and it didn't affect other sites, but it had a dramatic effect on what we were trying to do in, in Europe at that time. So I would say my biggest takeaway from that is, you know, understanding how we communicate as you and I just discussed. But if I could talk about being your own best self-advocate, because I think that's actually the more important lesson I learned and it happened in another instance, but I think that's the most important thing as a security leader, director, CISO, what have you, that being your own best advocate in relation to the government is the most important thing. So how does one do that? How does one be a good self-advocate? Well, today, I just read earlier that President Biden signed a new CISA Act where critical infrastructure has to report back to the government. The group, when I was in Secret Service, was founded just for that. We, the, the federal government was trying to enact similar rules under President Bush, where if there was a significant breach or had infrastructure ultimately be called back to the government, the Secret Service was going to be the point organization. So my experience is this. If you have a breach or a concern or something goes sideways on you, you may get a knock on the door from the FBI or DHS. And these agents will come in and they know nothing about your enterprise. They have good intentions, but they also have a mandate to go figure this out or go pull information. And in one instance, in one company I worked with years ago, the FBI came in and they handed me a list of subnetted IP addresses. So we have 10.10, 10.20, 10.200 IP addresses, but it was missing, you know, the the originating IP, it was missing a date, was missing a time, and it gave me no information whatsoever to track down what box was communicating on this subnet at what time. And they said, I need all the information about this. Can't investigate what you don't know. And I had to push back against the the FBI because they wanted information right away, but they didn't share information with me to help them. It's very much of a Jerry Maguire, help me help you. And sometimes the government tries to create the illusion that A, you're required to give the information. Now, under this new CISA Act, people will hash that out what you're required to give. But also you need to understand that you don't have to give everything. And if they're just collecting evidence and collecting information, you have a right to know why they're collecting it, or how they're going to help you. And too often, government agencies will come in, demand information they're not necessarily entitled to without a warrant or subpoena, and then disappear on you. And you actually don't get the help that they promise. So what I would say to every security leader, and I I preach this often, is be your own best advocate. Take the information they can offer you, have good conversations with them, negotiate them, and ask questions. Uh, The government's not entitled to come in and just take everything. You know, you also have 
your leadership to report to, your customers, your business, your board, your CEO. Those things are what should matter to you and the government will be all right. And the government may come in and play games saying sources and methods. We can't tell you, you're not authorized to know. Well, they can give you enough information to do some research yourself and try to figure out where the threat is coming from. In one instance, the government came in and gave me a uh, photocopied, downloaded PDF about an APT. And it turns out that APT was not what was affecting my organization. And the agent who came to me to interview me about a security concern wasn't even a cyber agent. It was just a local FBI agent in a local office who did everything from bank robbery to art theft to what have you. So make sure you're talking to the right person and you're getting the right answers. And if things don't make sense, ask questions. And don't be afraid to call another agency. You know, If the FBI is not helping you out, call DHS or call someone else. Because ideally, the government's supposed to work together. I will tell you truthfully, they do not. Uh, you know, different agencies tend to hoard information and they feel that they're, you know, it's their case and not DHS's case or vice versa. Ask around, talk to, build these relationships before you need them. You know, it's really interesting hearing you describe that. You used, used the term earlier, stress inoculation, which I thought was a great way to describe it. And talk about a stressful situation, right? The FBI is asking for things from you. Most people are going to be like, here's everything. I don't even this is the first time I've ever been through this, right? And you've given some pretty good counsel to say, oh, pause a minute, see what, see what help you can get. There's an element to this that I find really fascinating about the, the challenges around the way we think about collaboration and the ways we think about sharing information. Uh, one of the many soapboxes that I stand on is why we need to share information between, you know, from my corner of the world is, you know, ethical hacking and penetration testing and stuff like that. And a lot of people think of organizations like ours as like, well, let's not give them any information because the attacker doesn't have that information. But that's a really bad way to think about it because you do have that information. That's an advantage over the attacker. This ability to share information is an advantage. And what you've just described is why the lack of collaboration and information sharing becomes a problem. So how do we, as we think about information sharing, whether it's like with the government, as you're saying, or even within departments within our own company, how should people think about information sharing? I think our industry as a whole needs to start taking ego out of a lot of things, especially in leadership positions. People get to leadership positions, whether it's in the government or in private sector, by certain behaviors, maybe hoarding information, maybe controlling a narrative. And that's how they get to that level of leadership. And then it's very hard to convince them when they get to that level to, you know, something that's worked for them over the years to then share and release information. So I think it's really important on current leaders to coach and build cultures of sharing information from day one, especially for young professionals. I think in 10 years, we're going to have a much different view on how information is shared because I have a lot of faith in, and confidence in young professionals and what I'm seeing and their understanding of what collaboration really is and being able to communicate rather than being kingdom builders. I, I'd agree with you on that same optimism that uh, we're seeing. Yeah. As younger generations are rising into leadership positions, the ways they're thinking about this are, are pretty great. And I love what you just said, right? The, that's drawn in contrast to building kingdoms. The enterprises that, that we work with, you can see where the politics are happening, right? Where it's like, well, this person needs to do it this way because that's different than their predecessor. It doesn't even matter if it's a better way. It just needs to be different because they're trying to build their kingdom. And I've seen how that can be contradictory to building an actual good security program. 
So we're talking about leadership and, and team development right now. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about this idea that you have at your organization or that you've seen organizations do around how do you build good teams? We talked about offline, not yet. We haven't talked about this, but uh, about how do you deal with jerks and how do you build teams that don't have antagonistic type conflicts? So tell me about your view on that. How do you build a good culture, good teams? I felt like such a charlatan as I grew in my leadership role because what I found myself doing coming from a very hierarchical, sometimes patriarchal organization in the government into the private sector, into business is I did the opposite of the managers that I didn't like or the people that were angry or took people for granted or didn't listen to people. And I just changed my management style. Like I hated that about that person or how I was treated or how my team was treated. And I'm going to go 180 degrees this way. And for a long time, I felt, is that really the right way to do things? And I'm a student of Jocko Wilnick. He's a Navy SEAL and he has, you know, Echelon Front, which provides coaching and talks about hiring and building teams the right way. And he said the same thing. And it was such a relief for me that that is a valid way to build a team and build emotional intelligence and build kindness and build empathy in a team, especially if you experience the opposite, is to be very conscious and focused on that. How we're doing that in my organization is, and this is not my idea, but it's been a fantastic tool, is everyone in my group takes an Enneagram test. An Enneagram test will tell you your personality type, whether you're more of a thinking person, a feeling person, or an action-oriented person. So you know we share Enneagram results with each other, and we talk about how we communicate, and, and do we do things by feel, or do we do things by logic, or you know, are we, we see a task and we jump to action. And for example, one of my, my team is an action-oriented team, but I'm a thinking person. So it's not only each of us individually, but what is the team dynamic and what's the team goal? And so for an action-oriented team, we actually had to stop and sit and talk about everything together and say, listen, we jump, you know, we're, we're very forward-focused. Maybe we need to stop and slow down before we jump into action and understand what we're doing, you know, since we're an action-oriented team. And this Enneagram tool and having an understanding of where everyone else is coming from has been such a lesson. Yeah. I love that idea of not everyone thinks the same way. Not everyone communicates the same way. Some people might not even know how they communicate until they go through something like this. And it's really fascinating to hear you talk about it because here we are talking about a, a very scientific field that is information security, cybersecurity. And yet here we are talking about things like personality traits, communication methods as the key to how do you, how do you build those, those good teams? So how do we think about when we're building these teams? We certainly see this happen all the time, especially as companies grow and at the enterprise level for sure, where people who are not those things, some still succeed. People who are not kind, who are not empathetic. Maybe they're, they treat their superiors differently than they might treat the people they re that report to them. How do we solve for that? Because that is happening. People are being rewarded for that bad behavior. That's a tough question. I mean, I've left organizations for just that personality type. They're very charming above them and they crush everybody below them. And I'm very conscious to make sure that that's not happening with my organization. And if and when it does, I'm handle it. So I think it's really incumbent on the executive leaders to recognize the people below you and the people that work, you know, kind of on the scale below them, that you're accountable for everybody in the stack and making sure that those type of things aren't happening. 
And, you know, if coaching doesn't work, then that person's not going to have a place where they are as talented as they might be and the institutional knowledge they may have or the level of technical skill. I mean, you can't have a team that's going to eat itself because you'll lose everybody else, right? Especially in this job market, the security professionals are free to come and go and can always find that next job. The human aspect is the most important thing to me. To, to become a part of my team, you have to have a certain level of technical skill. And, you know, I've been doing this long enough and, and so have my other members of my team that we can judge technical skill pretty well, make sure people's not people aren't paper tigers. They have a genuine interest and genuine curiosity and learning and building and learning new skills, right? The technology that I started with uh, when I got into cyber in 2005 or how many generations gone now in 2021. So having that, that curiosity is important, but then the ability to work with people is the long-term sustainability of my teams. I love it. So how do we deal with the scenario where you join a new company? As, as you mentioned, you know, security professionals are forever employable. And this happens a lot where people go to a new company, or maybe you are within a large company and you change departments or whatever, and you enter a new team, a new scenario, and you see that things might need to change. Uh, maybe it's the way that the technology itself works, or maybe the way the team is architected and you're new to the team but you still need to speak up and say, there's a better way. How do we go about doing that so that we can actually make that progress that's needed, but without alienating, disrupting, you know, ruffling feathers and all those bad things that sometimes happen from trying to change status quo? I think that actually starts before you take the job. I think the best skill young professional or anyone in their professional career can have is really interviewing the hiring panel to make sure that they align, you know, We've all had these interviews where something in the back of your head says this is not right or these people, something doesn't make sense. And, you know, the, the once or twice we've all taken the job where you get a bad sense about it, but you take the job anyway, it ends up in disaster. So before you get that job, taking the time to step back and say, man, it'd be nice to have that pay or that benefit or that, you know, it's hard to make rent this month. You know, maybe waiting that extra two weeks for that next job the next opportunity will make all the difference in the world. So I think it starts in the job interview phase. Once you get in, being patient, listening, understanding why people are doing things the way they are and becoming an influencer. You know, why should we do this this other way? Even if you're very young or in your career, you know, or you're you know, a career changer and age really doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, what if you delivered packages for UPS for 20 years and you moved into information security? You still have a lot of life experience and ability to influence things. So it's a matter of listening, understanding people's motivations or the business case for something, and then using as much persuasion as you can to get where it goes, you know, and, and put your put your best foot out there. I encourage all my team to call me on my own BS a little more colorful when I'm talking to them, but I want to hear the difference of opinion. I want to hear if I'm wrong. And I think every IT security organization is going to benefit, even someone who's been in a three-day thing. This doesn't seem right. I, I want to hear that. And I think every organization needs to hear that. I, that You are preaching to the choir right now. I love that. Uh, whenever we have a new person join our team, one of the things I'm always asking of them is like, you have a unique opportunity right now where you're joining this company and you see it differently than the rest of us. Eventually, like the blinders might start to come on as you're, you start to get used to our systems and stuff. So in these first, whatever, three months, six months, a year, you're, you are responsible to call out where the flaws are because we might not see them. 
And that can be really empowering to people to be like, wait, you want me to tell you what's wrong? <laughs> I agree. And I give the same guidance to everyone who onboards onto one of my teams. And I refer back to my cousin, Vinny. Have you ever seen the movie, My Cousin Vinny? Sure. Yeah, a while ago. Yeah. And there's a one scene where the judge, Fred Gwynn, who played Herman Munster, tells Joe Pesci, Scambini, that was a lucid, well-reasoned, well-articulated argument overruled. And so I encourage people, like, even if it ends up at the end of the day that you get overruled on your idea, we have to hear it. And the only reason that this organization is not going to you know, necessarily go with what you do is there may be additional information. There may be new technologies coming. There may be something on the roadmap that you don't know. That doesn't matter. Even, even if I don't agree with you on something, I need to hear it. It's absolutely necessary. I love it. Well, JT, you've, you've been amazing. Thank you for all the insights and helping educate our audience. Uh, as we wrap up here, is there any parting wisdom that you want to leave our audience with or anything I didn't ask you about that I should have? No, I would just say that, um, as I said before, if, if dealing with the government, especially with this new CISA Act that's been enacted, you know, get to know the agents who come talk to you call someone, take them out for a cup of coffee. It's better to have that relationship early, join InfraGuard or the Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force. And then when that time comes, then you have someone you know and someone who knows you. But be your own best advocate. You do not have to hand out information that you don't want to. If they absolutely need it, they can come to you with a warrant or a subpoena. And uh, protect your company, protect your business, protect your own career. You know, as someone who wore the special agent badge, Special agents are there on behalf of the government, the government's interest. Take care of your own interests first. I love it. John, Tony, the global CISO of Labora Group of Companies, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate you. Thank you. And for everybody else, if you want to hear more about what JT's up to or request to appear on the podcast yourself, just go to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. <laughs>